Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests will discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is now the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, and we, with all the other members, are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith and the science and practice of medicine. Tom, today we got a great show, as usual. Our guest is Dr. Les Ruppersberger. He's the past president of the Catholic Medical Association and a recently retired OBGYN from Philadelphia. He's going to enlighten us about what board certified really means. You might think, you know, listening to the news that it means organic or gluten-free or not genetically modified. It actually doesn't, and he's going to help us understand what that means and doesn't mean. But first, a medical news item. And before the medical news item... A joke. Maybe some of you will think it's a dad joke. My kids will be out there not laughing. You cannot laugh with them. But I learned this joke from Dr. Matthew Bunsen, so kudos to you, Matthew. He told me that at the end of World War II, there were some surveyors going along the boundary line between Finland and Russia. And the surveyors came upon a farmer, and they asked this farmer whose land seemed to straddle the border, you know, which country would you like to be in? He said, oh, that's easy, Finland. And they go, well, why would you rather be in Finland? Oh, I couldn't possibly handle another Russian winter. Ba-doom, boom. So this... <laughs> moving right along. Moving right along. This item actually deals with Finland and the sauna. Now, many people in the U.S. say sauna, but it's actually sauna, like if you said the word sound and put an A on it, it's a sauna. Tom, it's not many people. Everyone in the U.S. says sauna. Nope, not the people from where I went to college, up in the Keweenaw Peninsula of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan at Michigan Tech University, where each of our dormitories had multiple saunas. <laughs> now, this is a study from the Mayo Clinic Proceedings. So when I went from college to medical school, I actually moved south to Minnesota. And nevertheless, even in Minnesota, they knew how to say it. And they actually uh, reported a study actually by some Finnish uh, physicians. And so the, in the Finnish uh, sauna has been going on for thousands of years in Finland. And I guess it's one of those things they decided to do where they have a superabundance of cold and snow. They do it for pleasure and relaxation. But what, what is a sauna? Well, it's a brief exposure for maybe 5 to 20 minutes to incredibly high temperatures. In Finland, they even use higher temperatures than we use in the United States. They say 175 to even the temperature of boiling water, 212 degrees, at least at the level of the head. And most saunas are made of cedar, you know, some wood that kind of smells good, and the air is incredibly dry. It's like Arizona dry in there, 10 to 20% humidity. So what they wanted to do is see, are there health benefits to saunas? And usually after this 5 to 20 minutes of uh, of heat, you cool off with a swim, a shower. Uh, we used to chop holes in the ice and dive into the water near campus. Because that's what you do in Minnesota. Uh, no, this was upper Michigan. Oh, my. Yeah, it was a little too warm in southern Minnesota. And your heart rate, when you're in a sauna, increases to about 120 to 150 beats a minute. So it's one way to get cardiovascular exercise while sitting still. <laughs> When my 16-year-old daughter said that, she said, really? I can get exercise by sitting still? Sign me up, Dad. So they compared people who used a sauna four to seven times a week for years versus one time a week for years. And what did they find? They found a decrease risk for various vascular diseases. Blood pressure was reduced 50% versus uh, those who only used it once a week over a 25-year period. Cardiovascular disease Mortality, like from heart attack, 50% reduction. Stroke, 60 to 70% reduction. And then something we recently had an interview on, neurocognitive diseases, meaning dementia, Alzheimer's, 65% reduction. Pulmonary diseases, 40% reduction. All-cause mortality, 40% reduced rate of death at a given age for those who used four to seven times weekly saunas versus one time a week. And they have, uh, they, they think that this has something to do with different effects on your uh, blood vessels, on inflammation, on production of chemicals that are called free radicals or cause oxidation, and it actually increases the result of those blessed internal opioid drugs known as endorphins. 
can you believe all this goodness from just heating your body to incredibly high temperatures? It is amazing. Is it the heat? Is it the dryness? Is it the combination of the two? Because I used to live in southwest Georgia, and I can tell you, (laughs) in the summer, I just walked outside. It was 212 degrees, but I'm not sure it did anything for my health. Ah, and it was humid. Exceptionally. So I, I think it's probably a combination of both. It does wonders for your skin, too. When I talked to my wife about this, she said, oh, yeah, it makes your skin just beautiful. And they showed in the study that it's safe if somebody's recovered after a heart attack, if they have stable angina pectoris, that's stable chest pain. Even if they have heart failure that's compensated, uh, it improves the symptoms of all these things. You know, if you do have heart disease, check with your physician first. But the benefits of saunas are written in the history of the Finnish people. So that's today's medical news from Tom. And now we're going to go to some lighthearted medical news from Chris. Well, some of it more lighthearted than others, but we've got a bouquet of news things to, to ah, look at. fragrant aroma. During this show. So first is a report uh, from one of our government agencies that I'll bet our listeners are not familiar with. But they're here to help us. It's the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, and they have a subcommittee on healthcare cost and utilization, and they're running a project. And it's actually a rather disturbing study. It looked at um, severe or uh, meaningful complications in U.S. women giving birth during the years 2006 to 2015. And according to this report, the rates of serious complications rose dramatically during those years. So, for instance, the rates of kidney failure, of shock, of sepsis, of ventilator use more than doubled during that 10-year period. Well, what's the deal? We're supposed to have the most up-to-date medical system in the world. If up-to-date means expensive, we've got it. <laughs> Blood transfusions, as an, as an indicator of trouble, for instance, went up 54%, even more so than some of the other complications. A disturbing bit of the news, the highest rates of complications were among the lower socioeconomic patients, so those who were from large urban and poor areas and patients who used Medicaid. Uh, black and Hispanic women were also more likely to experience really severe complications when care, compared to their Caucasian counterparts. So it's, it's really disturbing. Some of the colleagues you know, looked at maternal deaths and found there was a decrease overall of maternal death out, despite those complications. But when they looked at women of African descent, they were three times as likely to die as a result of a labor complication than Caucasian women delivering during those years. Any idea what's going on? Yeah, you know, a lot of theories, not necessarily a lot of proof. Number one on the list was obesity. It doesn't surprise us, and we've talked about this on other shows, but we are have rapidly become an obese country. The other is the use of cesarean section as a, as a, as a birth method. Cesarean section, the, the mom is four times more likely to die than she is with a vaginal birth. And all of the complications like blood, need for blood products, for infection, for blood clots are all much, much greater. The other thing they point out is the coexistence of other medical problems. So we've done a good job at helping people live with their heart disease to the point that now they become pregnant and have complications from their labor as a result of their heart disease. So probably the most disturbing thing to me reading it is it's so much higher than less developed countries. Yes. And we tend to think of ourselves almost with a little bit of medical arrogance, don't we? But it's not particularly a safe place. Uh, to have a baby. Now, it would be an interesting study if we could transport a bunch of Americans to another country where they had children to see if their complications were lower in the other countries. But that'd be a tough study to do, I imagine. (laughs) It depends what the country was. (laughs) (laughs) I've got another one for you. I think you're going to find this one rather stimulating. The association of coffee drinking with mortality. How about that? Drum roll. So this looks at the UK Biobank's population study. They've got over 9 million subjects that they track for a whole host of of health-related topics. This particular study from 2006 to 2016 looked at 500,000 people studied. And over those 10 years, coffee drinking was inversely associated with all-cause mortality. Maybe if you drink coffee in a sauna, it would be even healthier. (laughs) Uh, But all-cause mortality. So in other words, coffee drinkers were less likely to die of anything across the board. And they had similar associations with instant coffee and ground decaffeinated coffees, but not as much. 
So the, the caffeinated coffee had a better effect at improving health. Uh, so pretty interesting. And then they go on to point out, uh, this is published in JAMA, Journal of the American Medical Association, um, that in 2015, the U.S. Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee report concluded that a moderate caffeine consumption may be part of a healthy diet. Good. So, so my Diet Coke uh, might be okay for me, even though I don't drink coffee. They didn't include Diet Coke, but well, one has to wonder. <laughs> and I'll keep wondering. Because even the deca- decaffeinated coffee that showed uh, an improvement in mortality rates. Oh, very Interesting. good. So my, the first thing I thought of was that people who drink coffee tend to sit around and relax a bit. Maybe that's what's helping them not die. <laughs> that could work. I could use some of that. And then here's another study uh, dedicated to you from the Journal of Drugs and Dermatology, two oh, of your favorite I, things. I get that journal. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> this was about the drug spironolactone, or it's sometimes called L-dactone, as being as effective as antibiotics for acne in women. So like you, I take care of a lot of young women, many of whom are concerned about acne. So it caught my eye, and I wanted to to read on to think, gosh, we've always used antibiotics for acne, and sometimes we use this other drug. And this article is saying that spironolactone is just as good as antibiotics. Uh, So they go on to point out that there could be some long-term problems with using chronic antibiotics uh, with intestinal problems and antibiotic resistance in others, and that spironolactone may represent an effective alternative. The problem is, I go on and read a little further, and I think we should talk about this study under the category of all research is not helpful. (laughs) So they looked at switching rates. So in other words, they compared how often a woman stopped using spironolactone for her acne, and they compared it to how often a person stopped using antibiotics for their acne. And they found that the stop use rate or change use rate was the same for both drugs. And so they used that to go on and say, then spironolactone is just as good uh, as antibiotics. So really, True, true, and unrelated. Really a problem <laughs> with that study. You know, not to mention they're promoting spironolactone in young women. There's a problem with pregnancy and spironolactone. Exactly. And just because they changed drugs equally might mean they're equally ineffective. So when you're reading medical news, and especially especially research, we've got to remember all studies are not created equally. And before our break, uh, medical trivia question of the day, a, a simple question. In terms of a two-liter pop bottle or soda bottle as your measuring guide, how many of those full of blood does the average 180-pound person have in his or her body? How many two-liter bottles full of blood does a 180-pound person have normally circulating in their body. We'll be back after the break with our interview. You're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio. Welcome back to the second segment of this show on Dr. Doctor, which will bring up the topic of physician board certification. And, And the title of this interview might be titled, Do Not Be Conformed to This World. We're going to find out why from Dr. Les Ruppersberger, a Philadelphia obstetrics and gynecology physician who is now retired from active practice, but has had 36 years of experience in the Philadelphia area. He's a past president of the Catholic Medical Association. He's a natural family planning instructor in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia, and he himself, with his wife, had a radio program monthly about natural family planning in the Philadelphia area. He still serves on multiple committees of the Catholic Medical Association. He's a medical director for two crisis pregnancy centers. He's been married for 48 years, has two children and 10 grandchildren. Welcome, Les. Thank you very much. Glad to be on the program. Les, we're so happy to have you with us. You know, it seems like every day, especially when there's new physicians moving into the market in the newspaper ads and the radio ads, we'll hear that someone is board certified. I'm certainly board certified, as is Tom. But what's the deal with this whole board certified phraseology? What's it mean? And why should patients really care about it? uh, Board certification started over 100 years ago in an attempt to give the public a process by which the doctors that they were going to would be able to then demonstrate that they had clinical judgment and skills and the attitude that were essential for the delivery of excellent patient care. In the beginning, it was an attempt for personal achievement and personal excellence by physicians. It's 
never was mandated until 1972. It was always elective. Uh, the boards that certify physicians have absolutely no official or legal status. They're all not-for-profits, and they create their own standards of care to which they insist that physicians subscribe in order to achieve that board certification. Uh, it was only in 2002 that the boards, of which there are currently 24, have required maintenance of certification, which means the physicians need to be recertified every six to ten years, depending upon their specialty. And the certification examinations involve a combination of either written and oral examinations, along with now the newest module, which is a clinical assessment practice where they evaluate the quality of care that you give to your patients by automatically accessing your electronic medical records. Wow, that's a lot of stuff. So, now, I mean, for our listeners' sake, we should probably make a differentiation between having a license to be a doctor and being board right. certified. Do you do you have right. to be board certified? No, there's no requirement to be board certified. In fact, statistically, only about 83% of the physicians of which there are about 780 to 800,000 in the United States are board certified and the rest are not. And I would venture to guess that the majority of patients, if you approach them on the street and ask them, is their physician board certified, they would not know the answer to that question, nor would they know what board certification implies. Hmm. As far as the original part of your question, licensing, as soon as you get out of medical school, you get your MD or DO degree and then you apply to the state in which you are practicing or intend to practice, and you take um, provide them with all the appropriate credentials, and each state has its own licensing requirements. And ultimately, after you pay a fee and uh, fulfill all the licensing requirements, you get licensed to practice medicine and surgery. And quite a few states uh, reciprocate with each other so that if you have a license in one state, you can practice in some adjacent states, but not always. Who over... Patient... Go ahead. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, it sounds like these boards are almost rogue entities. It's like, who certifies that what they're doing is correct? Well, as I said, they're not-for-profits. They all have their own uh, board members. Um, it's a multi-million dollar business. For example, last year, the American Board of Internal Medicine had a um, $238 million net profit at the end of the year. They came into existence because of the term and pseudo-need, if you will, because no one was asking them for this, and there really wasn't a major uh, clamoring from the lay public to uh, seek out board-certified physicians. But what has happened or evolved over a period of time is that because medicine has tended to become more hospital-based over the last 30 or 40 years, um, hospitals are using board certification to grant privileges at the hospital so that they can cover their legal um, requirements to say, well, this person is qualified because they're board-certified by their their specialty board. Yeah, it's really fascinating. So, like like you, I've served on credentials committees at hospitals for many, many years. And today, an OBGYN, for example, like us, hospital privileges without board certification, really, I don't, there's no mechanism for that happening, at least where I, at, at our hospitals. Well, what happens in, in I w I've been on credentials committees for about 20 years at, at three local hospitals and been the chair of the department for uh, quite a few of them. And what happens is that residents that come out of their residency are usually not immediately board certified until they pass their initial certification examinations. So they will get temporary privileges to practice in the hospital mm -hmm. until their board certification arrives. And they're usually given a period of time of anywhere from six to 18 months to acquire that certification. So you don't, when you finish your residency training program, you get a certificate from your program director stating that you've uh, completed satisfactorily the required 
a residency training program. However, you do not become board certified until you quote unquote sit for the certification boards, which I said is usually uh, written and or oral examination. Now, Les, um, is pre- this required for anything besides hospital privileges these days? Do any insurance no. companies? No. So multi-specialty no. groups? No, except for working in a hospital. Correct. And now ho- there was there was there was some talk years ago that at some point in time, health insurance companies would mandate board certification in order to be reimbursed. But that has never come to fruition for any insurance company of which I'm aware. And I would think that they would have a legal battle on their hands since about 27% of the physicians in the United States who practice and probably accept health insurance in their practices are not board certified. Got it. So is this expensive and time-consuming for physicians? It has become more and more expensive and more and more time-consuming. The average fees range between $1,500 and $3,000 for each recertification. It takes many, many, many hours. You can now take the examinations online, but you have a requirement, as I mentioned, uh, with newer modules that just actually changed. They changed the certification requirements for maintenance certification in 2015 to send in information as to your patient outcomes, and they will evaluate you and grade you similar to the insurance companies, and they use that information supposedly to make changes in healthcare um, provision throughout the United States. They've established themselves and set themselves up as the quote-unquote experts in these areas, and so everyone looks to them for the standards of care and what is necessary in order to be able to practice in that specialty or subspecialty. I mean, it's really interesting. I, I mean, if you think about it removed, the uh, the concept might be nice. Let's find a way to say that Dr. X knows what he or she is talking about. Um, but what has evolved, it feels like, is really something else. I mean, what evidence is there that this helps our patients or that patient care is improved? There is none. There statistical studies have been done. That and seems troubling. <laughs> to show that there is absolutely positively no significant difference in outcomes other than the fact that it may be slightly more expensive <laughs> as far as the provision of services to patients. But one of the points that I got into in becoming involved in this originally was that they're starting to create standards of care now that violates uh, individual physicians' consciences and their own personal morals and ethics as to how they wish to practice medicine. And I think that'll be the substance of the second half of the interview. That is, I think, a key topic. Could you point out to our listeners, is this type of maintenance of certification required for any other kinds of professionals like lawyers, pilots, or teachers? None. So we're special. Correct. You may have some requirements for continuing medical education uh, uh, credits, which are still part of the maintenance of licensure. Yes. Position. So in, um, in the state of Pennsylvania, I have to achieve 100 hours of continuing medical education credits every two years where I go to conferences and lectures and do online programs and answer assessments and questions and pay money for all of these things to acquire certificates to prove to the state that I am maintaining my current level of information and uh, provision of healthcare services and then when newer surgical procedures come out, it's required before you get those privileges at a hospital to take some sort of course or program and get a certificate to document that you're proficient uh, using, a, say, a particular new surgical instrument like a robotic instrument to do surgery. Um, but that has nothing to do with board certification. That's only for maintenance of license. So you pay a licensing fee, and then you pay your CME fees, But then there's a fee to belong to an organization, and then there's a fee to belong to the certifying board of that organization, and then a fee to get recertified. 
So it's literally costing physicians thousands and thousands of dollars every time they have to go through the certification process. And as I said, other than the possibility of a hospital retracting or you're losing privileges at a hospital, there's really no legal requirement, there are no state requirements, and there are no other professions of which I'm aware that have the same type of requirements. So the bottom line for this first half of the interview is that Patients should not quit seeing their physicians if they're not board certified because there's no evidence right now that the medical care is any better or worse whether you're board certified or not. Absolutely. Then we'll be right back after this break with some more on Dr. Doctor, talking to Dr. Les Ruppersberger about alternative options to the current board certification system. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor here on Redeemer Radio. We're joined by Dr. Les Ruppersberger, past president of the Catholic Medical Association and an expert on all matters board certification. So just listening to this, it sort of, uh, I think Tom and I both are feeling our own blood pressures rise a bit. (laughs) It sure feels like a a gigantic money grab and wrought with sort of the potential for uh, ethical and all sorts of problems. Uh, Where do we see this going, Les? Uh, What's the future look like? This is going in a direction where these these individual boards are now they're creating more and more subspecialty boards which fragments the types of services that are being able to be provided. For example, when I finished my residency and as a generalist OBGYN, I could do everything in OBGYN. There were there was only one subspecialty board at the time in maternal fetal medicine. Now there are about a half a dozen subspecialty boards, which include gynecologic oncology, urogynecology, reproductive endocrine and infertility. And so now that creates a higher standard of care depending on what community you happen to reside in. And so if those types of subspecialists are available, then I, as a board-certified OBGYN who had been previously doing those procedures, and may have been doing them for years, I'm now relegated to a second-class citizenship because those specialists are now the standard of care in the community. And from a malpractice point of view, um, from an ethics and standards of care point of view, you have to rise to the level of what their performance levels are, not the general OBGYN levels. Could you explain to our listeners what that term standard of care really means? Standard of care is where the uh, groups take a look at what types of clinical services and medical services that are provided to patients that actually work and that are healthy and beneficial for the patients, and then that becomes the standard of care. Standards of care change all the time. The way I used to practice back in the 1970s when I finished my residency most of those medications that I may have used, for example, uh, a drug that was for nausea and vomiting in pregnancy is no longer available and has not been available for many, many years. But when I was in my residency and my training, that was the standard of care. When new information and new literature comes out with research and development and new medications, then uh, those new procedures and those new medications are evaluated to see whether or not they provide better clinical outcomes for patients than what had been previously done. And if that is the case, as documented in medical literature and in scientific review, then that becomes the new standard of care. Great. And then you have to practice the way the physicians in that community are expected to practice so the standard of care in a rural community, in a city where there is no OBGYN available and a family practice doctor is doing delivery, then the standard of care is according to his ability because he's the only one doing deliveries in that community. So I think this is a good lead-in to some false standards of care being set, particularly in the specialty of the two gentlemen I'm talking to, you, Les, and you, Chris. How is the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology trying to make the standard of care things that are unethical to us? 
Well, but most of the standards of care that are being dictated now and taught and mandated in residency training programs revolve around abortion, contraception, sterilization, and reproductive uh, technology. So basically beginning-of-life issues and end-of-life issues, and the standards of care are that these things are all considered to be, quote-unquote, under the large category of women's health care. And so if you, if I, I'll use myself, as a Catholic OBGYN chooses to not prescribe contraception or do sterilizations or um, refer for or perform technologies that have to do with assisted reproductive technology, then technically I am not subscribing to the standard of care as promoted by the American College of OBGYN, and therefore I am less than the other physicians and when that information gets out into the public, it can affect your practice, it can affect your income, it can affect your livelihood. And um, so conscience rights for physicians uh, across the country, pediatricians, they're dealing with gender dysphoria issues. Uh, internal medicine and geriatric, geriatric physicians are dealing with assisted, physician-assisted suicide, which is now legal in six states. And so they, those things are becoming the new standards of care, and they're being mandated, um, and not mandated by states for licensure, but mandated in performance of those procedures for maintenance of board certification. So this is, they're all deviations from the original Hippocratic Oath. And so a coalition of 30,000 physicians and their representatives met about three years ago in Chicago. I happened to be on that initial meeting that started me on this trek at looking at alternative board certification and coming up with boards that will allow physicians to practice according to the original Hippocratic Oath and according to their own conscience rights. So one of those boards is the National Board of Physicians and Surgeons, uh, which has over 6,000 diplomats. They charge $169 a year. Uh, they are in 15 states. Uh, they represent 18 specialties. Uh, they have over 16,000 physicians that have achieved board certification through them. And that may sound like a small number, but this is a grassroots type of uh, organization. And the, there was a protest, I'll give you an example, a couple of years ago in Texas, there was a requirement the Texas hospital system wanted to mandate board certification for maintenance of privileges, and the entire medical staff had a meeting and voted against it, <laughs> and, they were told, and, and they were told by the hospital board that if they did not agree to it, that they would all lose their privileges. And so they went to court, and that case is still pending in court. It's going through the court system in Texas. There are uh, other boards that are competing with uh, board certification. And, and when, you, when you take a look at it, I mean, there is a podiatry board for podiatric surgery. That came into existence and grew out of physicians, not physicians, but but trained professionals that just wanted to take care of the extremity from the knee down. And so there are podiatric surgical residency programs. There's a podiatric surgical board. There is a homeopathic uh, certification board. Uh, so there are other certification boards besides what belongs to the American Board of Medical Specialties, which is the largest in the United States and currently certifies over 80% of the physicians in the United States. So I think we're on good legal ground. I think we're on good moral ground. I think we're on good ethical ground. Uh, of course, this is going to take uh, a lot of time and effort because we will be competing with established boards. A new board would not necessarily be immediately recognized by hospitals for privileges. Um, so physicians should not be jumping out of the boat they're in into another boat. They need to look before they leap. Um, some of these uh, certifications may not be compatible with the Affordable Care Act and some other federal government entities that mandate that you provide contraception or mandate that you do sterilizations. 
so you have to look at current federal laws. So we need a little bit of research. We need to do a SWOT analysis to look at the strengths and the weaknesses and the opportunities and the threats. And, um, and we need to pray. The American Academy of Medical Ethics, which is an outshoot of the Christian Medical and Dental Association, which is one of those organizations that's represented at this coalition of physicians that I mentioned, um, has already a website and has already an organization that promotes the practice of medicine according to the original Hippocratic Oath, where we would do no harm and that physicians would be considered to be trustworthy and that we would be involved in seeking the patient's best interest and that we would not exploit our patients and that we would practice within our own capabilities. We didn't need anybody else to tell us what we could do. I mean, certainly as a board-certified surgeon, Chris and I would not consider doing brain surgery on anyone that came into our practice if they needed brain surgery, and we wouldn't be allowed to do it at the hospital where we practice because we only get privileges that are restricted and limited to what our certification tells us that we're permitted to do. You know, and it's that's int- another thing that's happening at the hospital level is that hospitals are modifying privileges constantly when they get a new subspecialist that sure. comes in. So now recently our local hospital got a board-certified urogynecologist. So the urogynecologic procedures that I had been doing for 36 years, I now have to reapply for privileges and get certified by this person who is now the chairperson of the subdivision in mm-hmm. OBGYN in urogynecology. You know, a physician can so. feel like the skies are pretty dark <laughs> at this particular moment in time, right? Uh, so if we think about we've got... Bright, there's some blue with some clouds. <laughs> you know, you've got state licensing uh, boards like California and others coming, requiring sterilizations and use of contraception and threats like that. We have sort of these threats. Uh, it's amazing. And then at the same time, I'm forced to think that in many ways, we physicians, we did this to ourselves. It's kind of frightening to think how this could have happened. But paint a picture for us in the future. Do you see these alternative boards uh, working and taking off and being something that a physician, a young physician would choose? Do I want to be part of an ABMS board or do I want to be part of, uh, of a different kind of board? Well, I think the main thing is education. We need to educate our patients as well as educate physicians that are in medical schools. Catholic Medical School has a large physician and residency contingent that we're constantly providing education to, and they need to be aware and know. I didn't know the difference, and I don't know if either of you did. When I finished my residency training program, I was told by my program director, you need to go take the certifying exam and get board certified. We're going to offer you a job. We'd like you to join our group. And so I ended up going in with the group that trained me. Uh, but they wanted me to be board certified, so I just applied and had to get on a plane and fly to Chicago and take the exam, and that was the end of that, and maintain my certification going forward. So I think that we, we need to educate ourselves and educate the public, and I do think that there is wiggle room. I think that we're on solid legal ground. There are federal laws protecting physicians to practice according to their conscience rights, and as long as they exist. I think that we will prevail, and I think that we end up being the better of the lot because we are doing what Hippocrates originally intended when he came up with his oath. Unfortunately, 83% of the medical schools in the country no longer take the original oath. They've modified it. Which is sad. Les, you've done a great job telling our listeners about this problem. We've come to the end of the this segment of the show. Thank you very much for joining us and telling us why board certification needs to be re-looked at for our physicians. You are listening to Dr. Absolutely. Doctor on Redeemer Radio. Welcome back to our final segment of Dr. Doctor today on Redeemer Radio. And as usual, you get now the answer to the medical trivia question I posed in the first segment. For review, the question is, in terms of the two-liter size pop or soda bottle, depending on your region of the country. It was a Coke bottle in the South where I grew up. Oh, yes. There's orange Coke and Sprite Coke and Coke Coke. How much blood does the average 180-pound person have in his or her body? So, what's your thought? 
Well, the average man, about 7.5% of his body weight is blood. In a woman, 6.5% of the average body weight is blood. So what this works out to is roughly three two-liter bottles full of blood in the average 180-pound body. That's six liters, uh, or yes, six liters of blood. That's a lot of blood. That's about 12 to 13 pints. And this even increases 30 to 50 percent in a lot of Chris's patient population. <laughs> That's right. If I remember my physiology right, I think average cardiac output is about five liters a minute, isn't it? I don't remember that. Which would mean <laughs> a, a blood cell would make it all the way around your body every minute. That's hard to imagine. Wow, I'd get dizzy if I were a red blood cell. I'm glad I'm not. <laughs> so, and how much blood do you have to lose so that you can't be brought back from the brink of death? It's about one-third to 40% of your blood. Once that's gone, there's no bringing you back. So a little more than a two-liter bottle full of blood. So there you have it. There are three two-liter bottles of blood in the average 180-pound person. But now to something more interesting. Right, Chris? It is. It's time to move on to our special uh, episode of Lineker for the Lady, talking about an upcoming issue of the Lineker Quarterly, uh, the fantastic journal of the Catholic Medical Association. Uh, this is about an upcoming uh, edition that will be published, we think, later this year, celebrating the 50th anniversary uh, of Humana Vitae. But, Tom, tonight we're joined by Dr. David Hilger, who is a diagnostic radiologist with the Radiology Center, practicing in a large hospital system in Omaha, Nebraska. He's got extensive experience in mammography and women's health. So, Dave, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Chris and Tom. Yeah, tell us a little bit about uh, your article, which is near and dear to my heart as an obstetrician-gynecologist, Hormonal Contraception and the Informed Consent. Uh, I... Uh originally wrote this um, article on a version to for the National Catholic Bioethics Center. And I was really motivated by my personal experience through the years and what I've seen as a diagnostic radiologist. And I think my uh, conscience was just being constantly tweaked, maybe by the Holy Spirit, or, or maybe I just noticed, uh, kept on noticing these things. And uh, finally, I was compelled to uh, write an article about uh, hormonal contraception and informed consent. Do you uh, think that it, it basically is? Yeah, it's basically from a secular viewpoint, from a scientific viewpoint, um, of what are the the risks of oral contraceptives. Do you think patients aren't told enough about the risks? I don't think people are well informed or probably told enough about the risks of oral contraceptives. Unfortunately, um, these medications are used so frequently and are so common that I think people accept them and physicians pretty much accept them as safe medications and consider them the standard of care. Uh, so the answer is I, I don't really think so. How many patients are currently taking these medications? According to the Guttmacher Institute, who keeps statistics on contraceptive uh, use, there are about 61 million women who are of childbearing age. About 60% um, of them are using a contraceptive method, and about 25% of them are using oral contraceptives. A little bit bigger, more percentage are, have other delivery methods. So that calculates to around 9 million women that are taking oral contraceptives. I mean, it's remarkable when I'll, I'll see patients and I'll recommend a medication of one variety or another, and they'll say, oh, no, 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 I don't want to take that. I heard about the side effects. Uh, and yet they may be taking artificial hormonal contraception, having never even asked themselves or their provider, for that matter, about the potential side effects. That's, that's almost a cultural phenomenon, isn't it? It certainly is. And it started back, back in the... Um even before Humana Vitae was written, um, the the movement for oral contraceptives was was well underway. By the time it was approved for contraception, it had already been used quite a bit for before it was approved for contraceptives for for other purposes, for painful menses and for all kinds of uses. And it just accelerated with the sexual sexual revolution. Now, what is it, you know, Dave, in your experience in your practice that made you say to yourself? 
women are taking oral contraceptives and they don't know about the risk. What what led you to that uh, assertion? Well, there was two areas that I started noticing. Um, the first um, the first was the the risk of blood clots and the mm. venous thrombosis, which results in a pulmonary emboli, which can be a life threatening mm. event. Um, cardiovascular risks, which we already knew about from the Women's Health Initiative, and, and we didn't, you know, and it was uh, one of the reasons that um, that was stopped with one of the arms of the study. Um, then the second one, which I, I started seeing um, increased frequency of, uh, we're trying to understand why we're having an increased incidence of breast cancer, and in younger women, and often um, a more aggressive type of breast cancer. And I started considering, could oral contraceptives be one of the factors? I think it's multifactorial, but there was some literature to support that. And recently, a study out of Denmark which just came out, which was a very large study of, I think it was a couple million women, or just under a couple million women, that were were in the study and um, and and confirmed an increased uh, risk from oral contraceptives for breast cancer. You know, it's interesting as an OBGYN for years. If I mention to a postmenopausal patient hormone replacement therapy, they say no, estrogen causes breast cancer. But we don't uh, tend to think <laughs> that the same estrogen in a 25 year old there's any risk of breast cancer at all. And it's mind boggling to think that how how that came to be. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, you know, estrogen has always been a risk factor. Uh, early um, anarchy um, was always considered to be a risk factor. The interesting thing about the Denmark study, it also implicates progestins because it found that there really wasn't uh, a big difference between the the older generation contraceptives and the newer generation, um, which was uh, kind of a kind of a surprising finding. So for our listeners who might not understand the terminology, the estrogens, the female hormone, that was the main uh, part, main component of early birth control pills, but now it's more these progestins. What are progestins as compared to estrogens, Dave? Well, there's there's several hormones, there's several types of estrogens and progesterones, but um, oral contraceptives have artificial estrogens and progestins, which are artificial progesterones in various combinations. And um, they are the two primary hormones involved in fertility and regulation of, um, of, of the female cycle. And of course, Chris uh, could probably elaborate on that <laughs> more than I can. <laughs> oh, I, I would agree with you completely. I, I think another a fascinating aside to that is uh, I don't like to reflect back to organic chemistry in college, oh, but, no. <laughs> but there is a book on my shelf somewhere covered in dust. But if you look at the structure of a lot of the progestins, these yes. synthetic hormones, they resemble testosterone much more than they resemble progesterone. So they look like a male hormone more than a female hormone. Yes, so we're going to tell these young women, take this, es- this synthetic estrogen and this testosterone-like hormone. It's going to make you all better. Well, Dave, what do you think um, authentic... Uh, informed consent would look like for a patient regarding this subject? Well, I, I took this from the um, ERDs, and I think... The it, ethical and religious directives from our bishops. Of the, yes, and the three requirements they list were that, and, and it's pretty much shared by the secular culture, that the patient be presented the purpose, risk, and alternatives of a procedure or treatment. Number two, that the information be presented in a manner that the patient understands. And third, the patient is make to be is free to make a, a free decision in that matter. And how do you think, in so, general, these three points are kept with patients being offered oral contraceptives? It, it's really hard to tell. I, I, there's two types of informed consent. There's an implicit informed consent where a physician would describe these risks, and um, there's a more explicit form where they sign a form and they're they're individually maybe you know listed or mentioned. So I don't think we have any good data on 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 what is really being done um, on this. I, I've never I've not seen a, a good study on this. 
I don't see a lot of um, explicit informed consent on this. Uh, I think it's more implicit where these things are mentioned. Chris, your experience on that? I'd I'd be interested in what you think. I would agree with you completely. It's sort of a big secret, isn't it? And then if I put something on social media, for example, about the risk of uh, hormonal contraception, I'm sort of immediately ostracized as not being, you know, up with the science or something. Uh, and yet, in reality, the science isn't discussed. As I was listening to you, I was thinking about the contrast. You, as, as a radiologist, have to get all kinds of informed consent from your patients to, to do studies and procedures. It's interesting that the standard is, is different, isn't it? Yeah, and I think the standard is moving, which is really interesting. I, I think we're, with the, with the sector culture, Maybe on our side in this because people are looking for more um, shared decision making, um, more information, hmm. and um, I, I think the trend is uh, that direction. Dave, in fifteen to twenty seconds, what final message would you like to leave with our listeners? Well, I th- you know if you look at the if you look at the the secular message on this, it's always they're always presenting. Um, Pregnancy that they counter the, the the these ideas of uh, as 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 if pregnancy were a disease. Mm-hmm. So in other words, they quote the mortality of pregnancy. But we need to look the at risk. the birth control pill is possibly harming. Dave, thank you so much, and to all our listeners, thank you for listening to another episode of Doctor Doctor, the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. For more information on the Catholic Medical Association, you can find us on our website, cathmed.org. That's C-A-T-H-M-E-D.org. Thanks for listening to Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, signing off until next time. Remember, your medical decisions can have profound consequences. Please choose wisely. Choose Catholic. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor. Tune in for Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1, or find new episodes at RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor and in the Redeemer Radio app.